Welcome to the Gut Academy podcast, where we delve into the world of the human microbiome. I'm Dr. William DiPaolo, a microbiome explorer with over two decades of research, learning and studying this fascinating ecosystem. Here at the Gut Academy, we're going to unravel the mysteries surrounding this microscopic inhabitants of our gut and uncover how they significantly impact our overall health and well-being. Our body is host to trillions of microbes that play a crucial role in everything from digestion to immunity. It's a bustling metropolis down there, and understanding its residents can be our pathway to optimal health. Whether you are a health enthusiast, a lifelong learner, or someone seeking solutions to continue health issues. This podcast has something for you. Together we'll explore actionable hints and hacks, debunk common myths, and provide practical advice to help you nurture your gut as we unveil the profound impact of the microbiome on our lives. It's more than just what's on your plate. It's about understanding the intimate relationship that we share with these microscopic beings residing within us. So if you're ready to step into a world where science meets your daily life, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Gut Academy. to you guys a little about something a little bit less concrete and a little bit more abstract and that's the idea of a, a healthy microbiome and what it means to have a healthy microbiome while many of us are striving to achieve a healthy lifestyle it's not so far-fetched that individuals would want their microbiome to be as healthy as possible as well and this is because uh, we're told that there are certain compositions of the microbiome that are equal to better health certain bacteria that are better for us than others and so I think that this new focus on the microbiome and the concept of health comes from the fact that we're being inundated with news and sometimes misinformation about the microbiome. And so today I'm hoping that we can address some of these issues and and talk about this in a way that makes you think differently about the microbiome and the concept of health. Right now, you can't open the paper, turn on the TV or the radio without hearing something about the microbiome. And that means that it's probably an important part of our health. And, And it is. It touches many different aspects of our physiology and Further, research has even shown that people with diseases, illnesses have a different microbiome than those individuals who were considered healthy. These findings have sparked a lot of research trying to identify diagnostics that we can use to define disease or potential therapies we can use to treat disease. But before we can mainstream any of these sort of biomarkers or therapeutics, we really need to establish a baseline understanding of what constitutes a healthy microbiome. As we talk about health, we have to look at the other side of the coin. Uh, and that is what is unhealthy. And our current terminology for unhealthy is pretty much just as problematic as the idea that we don't have a healthy baseline. The word dysbiosis is what people use to talk about an unhealthy microbiome. And that's a word that's been wrapped in controversy in the field of microbiome and with people who study the microbiome. The word dysbiosis is found in over 10% of scientific papers on the microbiome, and there's actually no real consensus on what this definition means. When you look at papers that they all may define dysbiosis differently, and so it's a term that's wrapped in confusion, and I think that this confusion is coming from the fact that we don't have a healthy back a baseline to even begin to assume what is unhealthy. So going back to the word dysbiosis... This is a term that means a microbiome that has changed or shifted in its composition. It implies that the same microbiome over time has changed. I actually don't like that definition. I think it's pretty narrow. 
I like to think that dysbiosis refers not just to the a change in the who's there, but also the change a change in what they're doing and where they're located. We know that bacteria can modulate their genes much quick, more quickly than we can, and so they can respond to the environment and they can respond to their changing um, environment much more quickly than our human cells can. And so it could be very much that a set of different genes are being um, turned on or regulated in these bacteria in a person who might have a disease. And there's also evidence that bacteria that are more associated towards the lumen of the intestine, which is the inside of, if you think of the intestine as like a pipe, it would be more towards the inside, the middle of that pipe. During disease, especially with inflammatory bowel disease and diseases like with inflammation, you see that some of the bacteria that are more luminal become more attached to the epithelial cells that are the cells that line the intestine. They're the cells that basically keep everything traveling through your intestine out of your body. We know that that location changes in people who have inflammation and who have chronic inflammation, chronic disease, with more bacteria appearing towards that mucosal layer. And so <clears throat> I think that, you know, for in my opinion, the word dysbiosis, I think it's more generally should be a change in the composition, the location or the function of bacteria in an individual. But I still think there's some problems that are found by using this term dysbiosis. And that's because, you know, most of the people that are using it are talking about compositional changes only, and that's fine. But what they're doing is they're using it to in an improper usage. So for instance, if a person has, if, there, if there's a paper that's comparing a diseased population to a healthy population, and they see that there's a difference in the composition, they're calling that new microbiome a dysbiotic or a dysbiosis, even though they're not comparing it in the same individual over time. They're comparing that microbiome of a sick person to another microbiome of an indiv another individual. So again, we go back to the original definition of dysbiosis, which is a change or a shift in the composition, function, or location. So how can you assess a change or a shift if you don't look at a person over the same person over time? And that's really what I think a lot of people have a problem with with the term dysbiosis, and that's because we're really not measuring it in the same individual. We're just comparing two populations. So how do you know that that other population isn't actually diseased or has an altered microbiome because it's only one snapshot, one picture in time that you're looking at, and this is only one data point. So dysbiosis should really only be used when we compare the same microbiome in the same person before and after disease or along a longitudinal um, study. However, if we had a consensus on what healthy looked like, then you could more likely make these sort of judgments and use the word dysbiosis when comparing two populations of people because there's a there would have been a general consensus on what healthy looks like. Now, I think further complicating matters with the word dysbiosis is that it's disease specific. So it means that different bacteria are present in a different in, under different disease conditions. So somebody with diabetes would have a different microbiome than somebody with inflammatory bowel disease, yet they're both considered a dysbiosis. They're both in individuals who are ill but they're both very different. And so how do you have, you know, what does that mean? And what is the difference? What is the difference? Is, are the differences the same? Are they equal? I think there's a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to sort of using these terminologies, and that's what makes it a little bit confusing for people. Even if you have the same disease, you can look at studies that are done in different places and find differences in the microbiome, even though they're both dealing with sick people. So what this also means is that you could have a research institute in City A looking at IBD or inflammatory bowel disease patients and a research institute in City B looking at the, a different population, but still people with inflammatory bowel disease and find that they both have 
very different microbiomes compared to even each other, even though they both have IBD. There's a lot more going into these sort of compositional studies than meets the eye, and a lot of them should be held with a little more skepticism than what I think people are um, looking at them right now. Basically, geographic factors and ethnic factors and all these other things play into the role of the composition. Right now, there is no standard for what is healthy. And the term that we're using for unhealthy, dysbiosis, is not really what we should be using because there's a lack of understanding of what constitutes a healthy microbiome. Why are we having so much trouble defining healthy? Why haven't scientists and researchers come up with the sort of recipe for the best microbiome? Well, there's a number of different reasons and there's a number of different obstacles that stand in the way. So when one considers defining a healthy microbiome, the sheer number of microbes and the genetic material that they contain is one of the major obstacles. Our bodies contain multiple thriving ecosystems, uh, about 40 trillion, I'm sorry, 40 trillion microbial cells, a number that is nearly equal to our own cells and our own bodies. If we consider all of the genes associated with this 40 trillion microbes, then we have a collective microbiome that is a number exceeding the stars in our sky. That's a huge amount of data, a huge amount of information, and a huge amount of knowledge that we're all trying to wrap our minds around. And when we're defining healthy, it does make it a lot more complicated when you're dealing with trillions and trillions of microbes than when you're dealing with something like a hundred. So this has been one of the major obstacles in, in defining healthy is this sort of just the sheer number of data that's produced by these different laboratories and these different researchers. Another obstacle into finding about a healthy microbiome or defining a healthy microbiome is the uniqueness of each of our own microbiomes. There's a huge amount of variability in the composition of the microbiome from person to person. Your microbiome is like a fingerprint to you. Nobody else is going to have the exact composition with the exact relative abundances and the exact ratios of bacteria. It's your fingerprint. Even that fingerprint shifts in an individual during the day. So you wake up with a microbiome that's different than the microbiome you go to bed with. And that's because of the diurnal shifts that happen because of the food we eat, the stress that we're under, the things that we're exposed to during the day will subtly alter that microbiome. Well, these sort of variations in, in between individuals, and even during in the same individual during, the, uh, during a day is gonna complicate matters. So how do you define healthy? with something that's so unique to an individual at a given time. Uh, we know that in adults, the microbiome is stable, yet it is adaptable. That means it's got this adaptability because it needs to be able to respond to these changing environmental factors and lifestyle factors. Uh, there's roughly more than 50% of variation between individuals in a given microbiome that we do not understand, that we do not define, we cannot define. Some contributions due to genetics and other things like that, but over 50% is a black box for scientists and researchers. They have no idea why there's so much variation in the microbiome. So much like Two snowflakes can never share the same shape. We don't have any idea about how or what contributes to the variability between microbiomes of individuals, and that makes it very difficult in defining healthy. Another obstacle is the environmental and lifestyle factors that affect the composition of our microbiome. Our microbiomes are with us from birth. That means that everything you experience in your life, these microbes also experience, from uh, the food you eat to the stress you have to they went to prom with you, they graduated high school with you, they got married with you. These microbes are with you during all of these major life events and even the smaller events that occur. And so whether you're stressful or happy or sad is going to affect your microbiome. Whether you live close to a highway or further in the country, that's going to affect your microbiome. These factors are constantly putting pressure on our gut bacteria and our gut bacteria are slowly evolving and basically coming so specialized to survive in your gut. And so that's a really cool idea and a really cool thing to think about. But 
it also makes understanding how these microbes or what healthy is a lot more difficult when, again, not only is the composition specialized, but maybe even within bacteria of a certain person, they may express genes or factors that make them very specialized and only expressed in this one person and not the next person standing next to them. While we can control many of our lifestyle factors, such as the food we put into our bodies or whether or not we drink or smoke, other factors we cannot or we have less control over. And these are both a ge geographical locations and also socioeconomic statuses, which seem to both consistently emerge as major factors impacting the composition of the microbiome and variations in the microbiome. So meaning, will we have to have a different healthy for people who live in certain areas of the United States versus other areas of the United States or certain parts of the world compared to other parts of the world? How important are these geographic locations in defining health and how different are these bugs or these bacteria between people who are healthy but living in India versus living in the United States? Um, I bet what you'll find is a very different composition in these two individuals, but yet they're still healthy. Another factor that's um, an obstacle is in defining a healthy microbiome is the sort of data that's being produced and the, the generation of that data and the analysis of that data. So compositional studies of the microbiome so far to date use um, the DNA of the bacteria. This doesn't tell us so much anything more than who's there. It maybe tells us a little bit about the genes that are present, but it doesn't tell us how these bacteria are functioning or what they're actually doing. It's a very, very, it's a good method for some things, but the DNA um, studies like the metagenomic analyses are not going to tell us these functional level analyses. And so a better approach may be to look at what the function of a microbiome is. And you can get that through understanding or through testing the different metabolites that are produced um, or other or proteins that could be produced by the microbiome. And an advantage of studying these metabolites or these proteins is that while we have a large variability in the composition of the microbiome, so the who's there, when you start looking at function, that variability goes away because a lot of different types of bacteria do the same things. And so when you have that, you basically have a constriction of that sort of variability and you see more clearly patterns emerging and, and different, um, different uh, functions associated with different states of disease or health or whatever. And so it eliminates the background noise and makes it much more easy to understand and to make conclusions than a composition. That's just in sort of the data generation. But when once you get the data, once you have that list of bacteria or all these DNA molecules, the analysis is also going to cause a large amount of variation. And so there's a mountain of obstacles that happen and a mountain of things that occur when we start looking at the different bioinformatic approaches used to study the microbiome. From the different reference databases used to identify the microbes to the type of sequencing machine that's used to the different computational approaches that are used to interpret the data, all of these things are going to impact what bacteria are assigned to your microbiome. So two labs analyzing the same data, but with different analytical tools, will get two different analytical results. We've not established a standard analysis yet in a way to analyze bacteria with a standard reference library, with a standard set of tools. And so without that, you're going to have a lot of variability between institutions and even sometimes research groups within the same institution. So there's a lot of variability here that really needs to be accounted for and a lot of mainstreaming and standardizing microbiome 
microbiome studies if we want to get to a level where we can discuss what is a healthy microbiome. And finally, um, the last uh, obstacle that I want to talk about is that most of the studies done to date are reporting on bacteria, but there are a number of other microbes that are present in your gut. Uh, there's viruses, fungi, there's protists and archaea. These all also influence the metabolic function of each other and the bacteria that are present. So until we really start deep diving into these other microbes and the role that they play, it's re really not going to understand health and how to develop tools and uh, approaches and therapeutics to maintain health by if we ignore these other facets of the microbiome. Um, we need to start going beyond just the low-hanging fruit, which is the bacteria, and really focusing on viruses, fungus, and these other players that are there at a lower abundance, so they're not as abundant as bacteria, but they're still very, very important. So how do we start navigating and overcoming these obstacles? Well, I think what the first thing we have to do is accept that there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all definition. We're not going to be able to say this specific composition, these specific groupings of bacteria is what is healthy. I think that's fiction at this point, we're never going to get there. It's very likely that every individual is going to have their own unique composition of healthy. And so instead of a healthy microbiome, we'll probably have to just look at general common features shared amongst and across microbiomes and across individuals rather than looking at an exact composition that defines health. We have to really start understanding diversity and going deep on diversity. We know that a healthy microbiome has to be diverse. And diversity is complicated in a way, but it really just refers to the number of different bacterial species you have and the number of each of these species. So you want to have as many different bacteria as possible and you want to have about equal numbers but a lot of equal numbers of all of those species. And diversity is important because it's what is believed to make your gut more resistant to stress-related changes. For example, it's harder for infectious bacteria to set up camp and cause infection in your gut if they have to shoulder out a multitude of other bacteria that's going to compete with that pathogen for nutrients and space. Um, diversity also makes the microbiome resilient. So if stress-related changes occur, then and, and a big group of bacteria is wiped out, you have other bacteria that can step in for them until they grow back. So that's called resilience. And so by having more bacteria, there's more of a chance that you're going to have redundancy in the system, and thus you won't be as affected if some sort of perturbation happens to your gut. I think understanding and promoting diversity is something that we really have to define when considering what is healthy and that's something that we need to focus on. We also have to understand that there's more than just a composition and that function and what the microbiome is doing is also very important. So we may have to double down on metabolic studies and metabolic profiling of microbiomes in order to define a healthy system. Um, this could mean that we do metabolic studies in isolation or we could also use metagenomic data which is the DNA data and we could use that data to provide functional capacities to, to sort of give us an indication or a clue as to what could be happening so that we can then develop further hypothesis and studies to really hone in and identify exact metabolic or protein factors that are being produced. We have to expand our studying and our understanding of all the members of the microbiome, including these sort of low abundant viruses and fungus and chaia and protists. They're all playing a role. You know, we really need to start studying them more in depth to understand what they're doing and how they're contributing to health. So it seems that defining healthy gut is more complicated than we may have thought, and it's also more 
distant and further away from us than we may have wanted to realize. So while scientists and researchers are all chasing their tails trying to understand what is healthy, what can you do to make sure that your body is actually and your microbiome is in the healthiest state as possible? Well, I think some really quick clues and um, some really quick um, hints here will help you decide or help you make some healthier choices. So first of all, avoid fad diets and crash diets. These are terrible for your body. Starving yourself starves your microbiome, and that's just common sense at this point. If you're only drinking water with cayenne pepper and lemon juice in it, that's all you're feeding your microbes, and that's what they're eating, and they need a lot more than lemon and cayenne pepper to function and to do what they need to do. Um, You also need to diversify your diet, and diversifying your diet will diversify your microbiome. So that means eating fermented foods which contain probiotic and prebiotic factors. Eat vegetables of every color. The color comes from a natural compound called a phytochemical, and phytochemicals promote health and they promote um, and they can act as antioxidants. Exercise and get sleep. Reduce your daily stress using meditation or yoga, daily walks, or whatever calms you. And of course, minimize processed foods and sugar. Uh, I think those sort of steps will start you in the right direction towards having a healthier microbiome. Uh, So in conclusion, uh, just as we wrap up here, getting to the definition of healthy is going to be a big job. I think that scientists and researchers out there are working on this, but there's going to be some time until we actually have an established baseline of what is health. So while they're working on that, you and all of the rest of us should be working on defining our own microbiomes and keeping them as healthy as possible with the tips that I just gave you and sort of thinking about this podcast in general. So um, until next time, I'm Dr. Will DePaulo. Thank you.